0: In this podcast. Okay, here it goes. It's Monday, January 29th, 2018. From Slate, it's the gist. I'm Mike Peska. Alexei Navalny, an opponent of Russian President Vladimir Putin, who holds the strange distinction of being currently alive, was arrested today. Protests over his disallowed candidacy were taking place across Russia. So to cool tensions, the Russian police grabbed Mr. Navalny off the streets. The BBC's Steve Rosenberg saw it. Then a group of uh, Russian police moved in, grabbed him, bundled him into a police van, uh, and uh, he was driven away. So quite dramatic. And when his supporters on Pushkin Square heard that he'd been detained, they were shouting, um, freedom from the down with the Kremlin, and Putin is a thief. They raise an excellent and accurate point. Now, Earlier on Sunday, Russian police raided Navalny's anti-corruption organization in Moscow. Police used a power tool to break into the office saying they were investigating a bomb threat. We use tool. If it does not work, we use bomb. That is threat. These democratic protests come at a time when the Kremlin is worried about a new U.S. Treasury Department document. It would spell out which senior Russian political figures and oligarchs have helped President Vladimir Putin. And it would possibly set these oligarchs up for sanctions the Russians have chafed against quite mightily in the past. The Russians have gone so far, and this shows you the depth of their... Of their concern over such sanctions they've gone so far as to suffer the indignity of meeting with the dullard scion of a u.s real estate tycoon in the guise of adoption talks they also once pretended to enjoy drinks with well-known international coffee boys this report by the way the treasury department report must include indices of corruption meaning the oligarch's net worth their known sources of income the income of their spouses, children, parents, and siblings, to which the oligarchs, I'm sure, are going to respond, look, we'll give you this as soon as I'm finished with my IRS audit. Or maybe they'll say, we'd love to give you the information, but, you know, our business rivals would take advantage. Or maybe they'll eventually say, look, only the media is asking about this. So the U.S. is investigating Russian oligarchs who don't want their personal wealth disclosed. Mm Mm-hmm. We're, we're investing because we know it's bad to have a really rich guy who won't tell you where his sources of information are Could do bad stuff to you. This is like if the neighbor's dog comes and shits on your yard, you try to punish the neighbor's dog by investigating who gave the dog kibble and what looks like maybe a chicken bone in the first place. It is hilarious. It's also tragic. And here is how Moscow is officially reacting to this U.S. report into their oligarchs. It is alleging that the U.S. is doing something really underhanded that no self-respecting country would ever put up with, influencing their elections. Quote, we really do believe this is a direct and obvious attempt to time some steps to coincide with the election in order to exert influence on it, Kremlin spokesman Dmitry Peskov told journalists, which in the domestic politics of Russia, that's a bad thing when when someone tries to influence your election. It's a weird thing these Russians have. They don't like that. Trying to throw another country's elections. The Russians admit that's bad. Peskov shrugged it off, however, saying, quote, we are all convinced that it will have no influence on the Russian election. I guess you could discount the damage the report might do because this report will only be covered by responsible news outlets and it was compiled by responsible professionals and whatever attention it garners that will be depending on the traditional means of information dissemination, you know, means that rely on accuracy. Now. If the United States employed a bot army and tons of anonymous meetup groups and an Australian nefarious demagogue working out of the Ecuadorian embassy on our behalf, then I'm sure the Russians would be worried and they'd be right to be worried. But now, not a bombshell, not a threat. Otherwise, we'd have shown up with power tools. On the show today, I spiel about the tactics that responsible Republicans use to communicate their potential opposition to Donald Trump. But first, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar is, by the numbers, among the greatest, if not the greatest, basketball player in history. But he's also a true scholar. He's written well-researched books about the Harlem Renaissance and the 761st Tank Battalion in World War II, among other topics. He's been a social activist longer than he's been an athlete, and we are going to talk with him about both of those things. Ready for a wide range of adventures? The Defender family features the two-door Defender 90, the Defender 110, the Defender 130 that seats up to eight. Learn more at LandRoverUSA.com forward slash Defender. Kareem Abdul-Jabbar is a six-time NBA champion, a six-time NBA Most Valuable Player, All-Star Games, 19 of them. And still, I would say that I'm as impressed by his post-playing career, what he's done on the page, as much as what he's done on the court. Let's put it this way. I would rather have Walt Bellamy's stats and Kareem Abdul-Jabbar's literary career than Kareem Abdul-Jabbar's stats and Walt Bellamy's literary career, although (laughs) luckily, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar has both. He's now writing a column about the intersection of sports and society for The Guardian. Don't mean to denigrate bells, but uh, thank you for joining me, Kareem.
1: Glad to be here. Nice talking with you.
0: He was he was tough, right? Uh, he's a little older than you, and you guys had battles down low, by the way, you and Bellamy.
1: Actually, what was pretty much toward the end of his career when I started playing, you know, I'd seen him play uh, back when I was in grade school, you know, so uh, he, he was a couple years ahead of me.
0: Your second column out for the Gar- uh, came out for the Guardian recently, and it's advocating paying players in the NCAA. You lay out your case. I think rather logically. I totally agree with the case. We're talking about a billion dollar enterprise where the main engine of this enterprise is not compensated. That's just illogical. But here is my question to you: When did you come to this opinion?
1: Uh, while I was going to college. You know, I had it explained to me, uh, and it was very simple, you know, just how much money the university was making because the basketball team was uh, playing in the NCAA finals. And uh, I didn't see any of that. The university got that. And I couldn't really blame uh, the university. They didn't set the system up. They weren't intentionally exploiting me. But the way it worked out was uh, I could see that I was being exploited and a lot of other people were making a lot of money on my endeavors, and, um, you know, I couldn't get any compensation for it, and there was something wrong with that.
0: Did you ever express this to your coach, John Wooden, and if so, what did he say?
1: While I was there playing, I, I was still trying to figure it out, mm-hmm. so, you know, I never really got to, to talk about it, and um, because everybody accepted it as the status quo, it really hasn't gone challenged until recently, you know, in the past Couple of decades, uh, people are starting to speak out about uh, how inequitable it is, and that shouldn't be the case.
0: If this does change, do you think that the players playing at the time of change will necessarily have to be a big driver of that through activism or just engagement? Players advocating for themselves, as harrowing as that may be, and as vulnerable as they may feel,
1: players have to learn how they're being taken advantage of, you know, so that awareness really is is the key to all of this. So it would have to be where, you know, high school and college players unionize. Mm -hmm. That's what they're going to have to do. It's going to have to take that kind of sea change in how people think about this before something is done about it. I mean, it's a great idea to have a business based on the fact that the, the people that do all the hard work and who are the stars, you don't have to pay them. Wow,
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. Uh, I, I think a lot of businesses would sign up for that, and even that would if the cost, great, yeah, it? even if the cost was, well, we'll we'll throw a scholarship your way. I find when I talk to college coaches, the college basketball coaches are on board with this idea. Mick Cronin yeah. of Cincinnati, big advocate. John Calipari, he's call him what you want to call him. He's not a hypocrite. He wants to pay players. The football coaches are not. And I have a couple theories as to why. One of them is, I still think Nick and coach of Alabama, will get his money. But, you know, P.J. Fleck of Western Michigan, he was getting paid 800 thousand dollars. Maybe he's the 80th best coach in NCAA football. I don't know if the money would be there for him if you had to compensate, you know, 80 players on a team. But, A, do you see that it's more popular among the basketball players? And, B, if so, why?
1: Uh, I think the reason that it's not more popular... And this way of thinking hasn't gotten around is because of the ignorance of the players. Mm-hmm. You know, these are young, really kids dreaming about playing college football or basketball and being on TV. And, you know, as the access to that, as the possibility of you being that person increases, you start forgetting everything else and just focusing on that. You have to, you know, if you're going to be successful.
0: It's an accident of history and no one's fault that. Amateur athletics associated themselves with college, and that for a lot of these leagues, colleges became the guild system, the internship for professional sports, maybe that should be decoupled. Maybe the solution is that University of Notre Dame can't have a football team, but they also have a lot of services that are associated with the school that have nothing to do with students. So you say, all right, we have some people playing for the University of Notre Dame and maybe Notre Dame wouldn't like this, but maybe a school, you know, maybe Clemson would buy it or Texas would buy it. Fine, you could wear the uniform and maybe you get to if you want to, take a class or two or a semester but student athlete is not something that we have to pursue do you think that there's any logic to that solution
1: i i not really because that would be more or less like we're going to hire an electrician to come in and fix the lights at the dorm yeah for me going to university meant that uh, i was involved I, I was there to get a degree and participate in that way and educate myself and uh now the the whole emphasis now is just go there until you can be noticed by the professional leagues and then goodbye. You know that that's basically what one and done is.
0: Well, you were you you were a well-educated teenager and you came to college able and ready and willing to learn. It seems to me from reporting that I've done a lot of these kids aren't. I mean, they're recruited no. to play sports and they're not really ready or even able to do the necessary college work.
1: No, no, no. They're not. And that's part of the whole problem, all the hypocrisy. There was a gentleman who played, uh, had a great, first rate NFL career, was all pro, uh, played, what, uh, eight, ten years? And then we find out uh, some years after his NFL career is over that he was illiterate. Yeah. Okay, now how can you go in?
0: Dexter Manley, you're talking about, yeah.
1: uh, Oklahoma State. Yeah. The hypocrisy and dishonesty of, of that situation is so obvious. That shows all of what it's about. You know, it's impossible to expect good things to happen when when the system is as uh, corrupt as it is.
0: Now, you have written about how you perceive, and I agree with this, that basketball is becoming America's sport. And it clearly is where the nexus of just intelligent talk and social activism and being on the cutting edge of where America is going, that's basketball. Did you feel that you personally got more socially aware and involved and interested in social issues as your career went on, as you uh, went from Lou Alcindor to Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, as you went from the Milwaukee Bucks to the Los Angeles Lakers?
1: No, I I think my interest was uh, installed in me, really, on the murder of Emmett Till, and I wanted to understand why, you know, what did he do? Why did that happen to him? You know, just the kid in in Mississippi visiting his relatives, and he ends up dead. Why did that happen? And my parents didn't have the words to explain that to me. Mm-hmm. You know, so I just had to pay attention to what was going on. I started studying what was happening in the Civil Rights Movement that's really what what motivated me. And then uh, while I was in high school, I, w- I was in a mentoring program, uh, in a journalism workshop, and I got the opportunity to uh, interview Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. You know, and that that was stupendous. You know, Dr. King had just been um, named Man of the Year by Time Magazine uh, less than a year before that. So everywhere he went, he had a knot of press people following him and uh, writing about what he was doing because all of the uh, civil rights uh, legislation was actively being debated and acted upon in Congress. It was special times. Absolutely.
0: I want to go back to Emmett Till for a second because I have have an 8-year-old and I could... Imagine him asking a question like that, which is, you know, his mother puts uh, the body on display because I want them to see what they did to my boy. And it's a simple question like, how could this be done? How could this happen to a kid not much older than me? It's galvanizing. It galvanized you. Do you look at, a, at an event like Ferguson or all the um, attention of Black Lives Matter as similar, or do you say, you know, whatever's going on now, They had they, you guys have no idea how bad it was back in the 50s and 60s. How do you look at it?
1: Uh, it's a continuation of the same set of circumstances. What happened in Ferguson is just another event on the same trail of events that started with, the let's say, the end of uh, World War II and the beginning of the, the civil rights movement, where black Americans were actively determined that Jim Crow had to end now.
0: I guess my question, when it comes to athletes and activism, I could understand your era. Uh, Things were coming to the fore. The civil rights era, it it was bottled up and it was just coming out. And it seems that now... To some extent, that's going on. And yet for years, for decades, you had a lull, exemplified by the phrase, Republicans buy sneakers also. How do you explain that? How I guess my question is, how did the urgency ever go away?
1: Well, you know, I think uh, after the gains of the Civil Rights Movement, we had a huge shift in the access for many black Americans to get a better education and to save some money and uh, have their uh, circumstances changed economically, but then uh, it, that reached a point. You know what they talk about the uh, the glass ceiling. When Black Americans started to encounter that 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 same ceiling, mm-hmm. uh, the only thing now it was a little bit more subtle. Uh, a lot of the gains of the civil rights movement have been permanent. Absolutely. But uh, there's also been a, a lot of backlash against the civil rights movement. You have people saying that, uh, you know, white people are being discriminated against because black people have achieved greater access to success and places of power. And yes. now they're giving some of the orders. And this is, uh, this is hard for some people to take. What uh, Colin Kaepernick was motivated by, what you just mentioned, by Ferguson, what he saw there. The fact that people are speaking out about it and uh, combating that, that, that shouldn't surprise anyone.
0: Kareem Abdul-Jabbar scored the most points in NBA history, and now he makes points for The Guardian, and also in a book for kids, Becoming Kareem, Growing Up On and Off the Court. Thank you so much for your time, Kareem. It was
1: great talking with you, and uh, you have a good one.
0: That Joe Manchin wanted out. This place sucks, he said, to Chuck Schumer. Schumer ultimately did successfully woo back the West Virginia Democratic senator. He sought and filed for re-election. Manchin, though, wanted out of the Senate. He wanted out of Washington. He lives on a houseboat, it's named Omo 7, but maybe he'd dock it in a crick up by the holler. That is what you maybe need to know. As background. For this, mansion, going on Meet the Press this Sunday with Chuck Todd. This whole bantering back between Chuck and the president, uh, that's New Yorkers talking to each other. I don't know. I don't understand that language, but that's how they talk. Now, when Chuck and I talk, we talk West Virginia to New York. That's a little different. And I said, Chuck, this place sucks. Uh, What's your reaction to the president's um, reported order to fire Bob Mueller? How much much does that concern you? Again, that's uh, New York talk. I look at it strictly as uh, the New York uh, language that they have, which is different than most other people. Well, that's New York talk. What would, what would West Virginia talk be? Chuck, old buddy, I'm a hootin' a holler away from being in a peck of trouble. Listen, I'm not making fun of West Virginia. I have seriously, literally spent a lot of time in West Virginia. I went to the Jamboree in the Woods there, like around 1989 or something. You know, you know the Jamboree in the Woods. It's one of the premier... Outdoor Country Events takes place in the Wheeling area. Let me read you some of the lineup this year. You got Travis Tritt, Neil McCoy, Marshall Tucker, Charlie Daniels Band. What do you mean it's not diverse? They got country and western. Also, that lineup features both banjo picking and a fiddlin', And that is what I believe they call intersectionality. Anyway, if you're fixing to hear some fiddling, I think the jamboree in the woods might be your nirvana. So if Joe Manchin is the closest thing that the Democrats have to a Republican, maybe you could say that main Republican Susan Collins is the closest thing her party has to a Democrat. She is a sensible, pragmatic, patriotic public servant. So how does one of those kind of people deal with what's going on when the president threatens to fire the man investigating him for firing the man investigating him. Here was Susan Collins on Face the Nation, as quizzed by Nancy Cordes. But doesn't it sound like the president was at least trying to obstruct justice? I think that the president was frustrated and angry about the investigation, and he did what he should have done, which was to talk to his lawyer in the White House. And clearly the White House counsel said, You can't do this, Mr. President, and it would be very unwise for you to try to do so. Frustrated and angry, that's a kind way to put it. Livid and unhinged, a little more vivid. The president certainly can talk to his lawyer, but Trump didn't just talk. He ordered, he ordered the firing. The Times reported that, the Post reported that, everyone's confirmed that. That Trump put in the papers to fire Mueller and was only after... His lawyer, Don McGahn, threatened to resign that that idea was quashed. Trump wasn't crabby one day around the Oval Office. Trump issued an order and his lawyer threatened to walk. Simple fits of pique do not require such forceful countermeasures. So what's it all mean? This is what I think it means. I think Susan Collins is phrasing it like this, phrasing it somewhat inaccurately because she doesn't want to poison the well. She wants to maintain... Healthy enough relations with Trump. Healthy enough. She wants to communicate that his actions weren't as bad as she knows. I think she knows they were. Now, maybe that's because there's nothing we can do about past actions, especially past actions that weren't acted upon. So this is just a way for her to keep her options open. She doesn't really benefit much from throwing a hissy fit over this idea that was never executed. I sense that her tactic, and I could be wrong, is to downplay the severity of what this means in public while making it clear that doing so is a courtesy. She I hope, is signaling that she will not accept an actual Mueller firing, though, since Trump seems to only respond to public declarations at face value, who knows how much of what she's trying to say is getting through. Now, Lindsey Graham, a Republican of South Carolina, tried a different ploy on ABC's This Week This Week. I see no evidence that President Trump wants to fire Mr. Mueller now. I, I don't know what happened back last year, but Uh, It's pretty clear to me that everybody in the White House knows it'd be the end of the President Trump's presidency. See, the president didn't do anything wrong. Boy, if he did, that'd be something. But Lindsey Graham's going to act as if the president is his great ally, while publicly making clear, though we all know what the president must also know, that firing Mueller would be an uncrossable line. Maybe we, as fair-minded patriotic observers, would like it if these Republicans publicly renounce what the president did. That would be satisfying, would also be, they'd be right, they'd be ethically and morally right. But if they're doing that privately or through this kind of bank shop method that Graham is employing, that's fine with me. Uh, His intent is clear. It even goes so far when it comes to Graham as the wall, how Lindsey Graham talks about the wall. Asked about spending $20 billion on a useless project, here's what Graham said. Well, I think what will happen is that we spent forty billion dollars on a border security in the gang of eight bills, so twenty-five billion is not a outrageous number. We spent forty-two, I think it was on securing the border. Well isn't that a lot like saying, well, we spent fifty thousand dollars on surgery, twenty thousand dollars, that's not so much to pay a faith healer. Yes, yes, yes. You spend forty-two billion on security, twenty billion on a lack of security, it's not an apples to apples comparison. It's an apples to a note card that says, place apples here, comparison. So on that, Graham is rolling over and playing stupid. He is insulting your intelligence, but appealing to Trump's intelligence. See, you can't really appeal to Trump's intellect and your intellect at the same time, can you? I mean, if you could, that would be the biggest insult of all. And that's it for today's show. The Gist was produced by Pierre bien He lives in a gilded Gulfstream trailer. He's nicknamed My Golden State. Mary Wilson, just senior producer, has gone and drug a sleeping bag into the woods and drawn a chalk circle around it, and she's dubbed that her old line state. Steve could executive producer of Slate Podcast, has a very spacious lean-to that he utilizes, and he's carved on it the phrase, there's no place like home, the gist. If a jamboree goes down in the woods and nobody hears it, and that tree was a hickory and it leaves a stump, does Charlie Daniels reference it in the lyrics? Umproo do dooparo and chicken in the bread pan are picking out dough. Thanks for listening. Chicken in the bread Pan is picking out dough. Ah, mmm. The first taste of rare bourbon you finally got your hands on. That's nice. At caskers.com